Welcome to Coming from Left Field, where we have conversations about politics, books, and current events with your host, Greg Gottles and Pat Cummings. Is it possible that neoliberalism is the ideology at the root of all our economic problems? From the breakdown of government institutions, the atrophy of democratic practices, the misguided credo that business tax cuts create jobs, free trade benefits all, entitlement programs are the cause of government deficits, and markets are always right. How did we become ruled by this false doctrine? Professor Jack Rassman has some opinions on the subject. Let's discuss. Hello, warm greetings. We are gathered here today with Dr. Jack Rasmus, who's a political economist, professor at uh, St. Mary's College in California. And we're going to be talking about, uh, Jack, your, your book, which is The Scourge of Neoliberalism, uh, U.S. Economy from Reagan to Trump. And I, I just can't tell how excited I am to have you here because you are so prolific. You do a, a weekly radio show. Uh, I've been following you on Twitter with really prolific uh, output there. Uh, you are um, have written numerous, numerous books, uh, articles, um, and I even hear you're a playwright too. Is that right? Yeah, I've uh, I've written a couple of plays, mostly political plays and uh, labor plays. My last one was uh, simply called 1934. It's a musical about uh, the 1934 San Francisco general strike. Uh huh. Uh huh. Peddling the theaters right now, hopefully. <laughs> oh, good, good. Well, you are you are remarkable um, in your output. And I, I wrote this in my email to you, and this is a true story. I really did get a C in economics uh, in college. And Greg is our economist of the two of us. I don't know if you follow his blog, ZZ blog, but he's written numerous uh, uh, articles regarding economics. And so um, just be, be kind to me, you two, okay? This, this stuff is hard. You'll do fine, you do fine. Don't worry, uh, I got a C in my first economics course as well. It's no, it's no indication that, uh, you know, you don't know anything about economics. In fact, you know, uh, the more you unlearn about what you're taught in college is probably the better for learning economics anyway. Good. Well, let, let's talk about your book. I, I, I love this book, um, very approachable. Uh, it is. It traces the the history of neoliberalism from last forty years or or so. Uh, in a way, uh, I think that you must love Stephen King because it's almost a horror story when you see how effective and accurate uh, this neoliberalism has been in restructuring in not a very good way our economy and our lives. Um, tell, give me an elevator pitch about your book and let's, let's, let's chat a little bit about it. Okay. Sure. Well, you know, if you look at the history of us capitalism, uh, periodically, uh, it undergoes a major restructuring, uh, to, uh, face the challenges, the crises or the opportunities. Uh, and, uh, this has been clear from, uh, the early 20th century when the U S economy and capitalists restructured in order to take advantage of, uh, the fact the U S was becoming a, a major uh, player in the global, uh, uh, capitalist economy. Uh, it was the manufacturing center of the world before world war, world war two, world one. Uh, and then it knew that world war one was going to provide opportunities for U uh, S capitalists to become even uh, more dominant vis-a-vis uh, -vis British capital. So we saw a major restructuring in terms of policy uh, just before World War I. That's when we got the Federal Reserve. That's when we got the corporate income tax and a number of other restructurings. And the outcome of that in the 1920s was that the U.S. became at, at least a, a co-dominant force along with British capital uh, in, in the global economy. And the dollar became the sort of uh, just as important as the pound. Um, and then, of course, uh, another restructuring uh, occurred after World War II, uh, 
when the U.S. Uh, became uh, the big hegemonic uh, economic capitalist power, and we saw a whole number of uh, changes in the structure of the policy. Uh, in, in the book, I try to focus on four main policy areas. One is fiscal policy, which includes uh, tax policy and uh, spending policy, defense and non-defense and uh, debt, uh, debt management. Uh, and then monetary policy, which is about the central bank and its policy uh, with regard to um, interest rates and money supply and controlling of the dollar. Uh, and then industrial policy, which is about uh, containing unions and also privatizing the economy and deregulation and some other uh, wage compression and so forth. Uh, and then what's called uh, uh, external policy or trade policy has to do with trade deficits, uh, international balance of payments, currencies, and so forth. If you look at those four main policies, which are the main economic uh, levers by which the capitalist uh, uh, control the domestic and now the global economy, um, you see different mixes occur, different weights and different policies within those policies occur uh, to uh, uh, maximize the ability of, of the capitalist class to really control, uh, you know, its, its uh, domestic economy and global economy. Uh, first restructuring before World War I, second right after World War II, Third restructuring occurred in, uh, in the 1970s when you had this global crisis uh, of capitalism, U.S. and others, and uh, the U.S. Uh, uh, at that time uh, was, was having increasing challenges domestically and globally. Uh, we saw the uh, challenge from Europe and Japan beginning uh, economically uh, beginning to emerge. Uh, and uh, the collapse of the Bretton Woods international payment system early in that decade, wage price controls. And of course, we had domestic challenges going on. Uh, in the early 70s, we had the biggest strike wave uh, of, of unions in this country since 1946, in which the unions were very successful. Uh, in fact, I wrote my PhD thesis on that. Uh, which showed that in major collective bargaining agreements, for example, unions were getting 20, 25% increases in the first year of three-year agreements. Uh, this was construction trades, the steel workers, auto workers, teamsters, and the capitalists simply could not control it. And that's why they brought in uh, Nixon uh, to do the wage price freeze and controls and so forth. And then the capitalists themselves mobilized to uh, start the uh, 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 destroying the unions, which, you know, they effectively did over the next, uh, at least in the private sector, the next couple of decades. Um, so we had uh, social movements as well. You know, you had the women's movement, you had uh, Black liberation, and you had uh, environmental movements. You had all these social movements going on in the 70s that uh, constituted a challenge to uh, U.S. capital. Uh, domestically, you had the unions involved with that as well. They never united these different movements, which was a big problem. But then uh, the U.S. was being challenged abroad as well, uh, not only by uh, you know the Japanese and others, but uh, by the Soviet Union and so forth. Uh, so uh, it, it was a, an era of a uh, great uh, a great crisis uh, for U.S. capital and for the British as well. And out of that comes the next restructuring, which is neoliberalism. Uh, for me, neoliberalism is not just some ideology about privatization or deregulation. You know, a lot of the books on it uh, focus on, uh, you know, these intellectuals talking about, uh, you know, a new kind of liberalism. Well, uh, that's just the ideology or part of it of neoliberalism. Uh, to me, it's these four areas of, uh, of uh, policy and restructuring. Uh, and you can see it began in the late 1970s, uh, even under Carter, but really began to accelerate uh, in the early 80s under, under Reagan. And we got a whole new mix of these four major policy areas. Uh, we, we got uh, uh, increased defense spending. We got an attack on social programs. Uh, we got a start of a, a massive tax cut uh, for investors and corporations and, and the wealthy while we started increasing uh, regressive taxes. Uh, so that was the tax and fiscal policy of it all. Uh, and, uh, you know, in monetary policy, uh, at first it was a lag there. Uh, they used uh, monetary policy to uh, uh, 
uh, take it out on consumers and the working class, the inflation of that period, which was really caused by uh, oil price push. Uh, but uh, eventually uh, they got rid of Paul Volcker and they uh, uh, started with Greenspan on what is the uh, interest rate policy associated with neoliberalism. That is to keep interest rates low, chronically low, which keeps the dollar down as well, which is great for U.S. multinational corporations doing business abroad, which is part of neoliberalism, move all of that production and manufacturing offshore. And now those uh, US companies offshore maximize their profits by keeping the dollar low. You see, they, they can transform their profits earned in Argentina pesos or whatever into more dollars. So part of the uh, monetary policy and uh, currency policy of neoliberalism is to keep the do uh, dollar low and to keep, uh, therefore, uh, interest rates low, which keep the, help keep the dollar low. Uh, and also to start flooding the economy uh, with all this excess uh, liquidity, all this excess money uh, from the central banks, uh, in this case, the Federal Reserve, which has been going on since at least 1986, which uh, when you combine that with deregulation uh, of, of the financial system, both globally and domestic, uh, what you get is uh, uh, massive funding of financial assets. And uh, that just uh, increases all kinds of demand for financial assets. And you deregulate it, so you create new financial assets and markets like derivatives and so forth. And the finance capital side gets uh, filthy rich as a result of basically the Fed throwing all this money, liquidity, decade after decade uh, into uh, the banks and into uh, you know, the, the investor class here. And we can see that really dramatically since 2008, that has accelerated uh, the Fed through $5 trillion to bail out the banks, never took it back in 2008-9 uh, and continued uh, doing it through what's called quantitative easing until about 2016. Uh, and then under uh, Trump, it started doing it again and now uh, through another $4 trillion just in 18 months at the banks. Uh, this time they didn't e even need to be bailed out, you see. In 2008, some of them needed to be bailed out, but this time they just threw the money at them anyway. That's the monetary policy side of neoliberalism. Uh, and then we have the, the industrial policy side, which is uh, not only deregulate, but privatize as much uh, of, uh, of public goods as you can and uh, keep wages compressed, keep them low, uh, weaken the unions, you know, uh, uh, convert their uh, uh, pension plans to 401k plans, uh, shift the costs of uh, healthcare onto the workers instead of uh, 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 the corporations. There's a whole set of policies on the industrial policy side. And of course, keep the offshoring going uh, as much as you can. Let, let, let me ask one question because I'm a little confused by this. There's I remember the, the, the Powell memo was back in 1971. Yeah. It's often used as a, a way in which the right got their act together in an organized, structured way to take over the universities. To I, I mean, it became a, a very successful blueprint that was used by Koch brothers and all of these other moneyed interests to um, promote and their ideology. You're describing all of these things happening around Reagan's time or a little bit before the third, the third wave. How, how were they coordinated? I mean, was, was there a, I mean, were these things that just organically happened or were they organized and structured through different, um, you know, mechanisms to be so effective in doing all these things that you're saying. Oh, it's definitely structured. You know, the Powell Amendment in 71 is kind of like a call to action. Right. 71 is when uh, the unions uh, had these, these massive uh, strikes and, and wins, okay? Mm -hmm. It was also when you saw a peak of the social movements going on. Uh, so this was a call to action uh, by capitalist intellectuals there, Powell, uh, to, uh, okay, we got to do something about this. And almost immediately what happened, apart from the wage freeze to stop unions in the track, uh, was uh, immediately the uh, construction industry, which uh, employers who were at the forefront of this union uh, you know, offensive that spilled from construction to trucking to manufacturing, 
uh, at the forefront of that, uh, they started forming what was called the Construction Industry uh, um, Council. And it was that Construction Industry Council designed to, okay, we're gonna break the power of the construction unions that later became the Business Council, a new business structure uh, in the mid to late uh, 70s uh, made up of just the largest CEOs of the biggest corporations. And it's out of the business council that you have the business roundtable that's formed. And that's the, the, the organization that puts forth a lot of these new ideas about taxes and so forth that later becomes the core of neoliberal policy. Uh, so uh, it's business organizing itself under the crisis for a new offensive. Uh, and of course, they then uh, uh, determine politically how they're going to uh, win elections. Uh, they, they form this coalition with the radical religious right, uh, and they start going into new ways of, of raising money for their candidates. Uh, so the late 70s is uh, a time where uh, you know, big corporate capitalists decide uh, we've got to be more aggressive and uh, more aggressive, not only in terms of economic policies, but in terms of making these political parties do what we want them to do. And it's at that time, I believe, that the uh, corporate interests uh, really take a deeper, more direct, active role in the Republican Party to push it into this neoliberal to, to get their boy, uh, uh, Reagan, who's a good talker, who can push it all uh, in, in place. The Democratic Party is not really taken over uh, until uh, the 1990s, when you've got uh, um, the Democratic Leadership Conference, the DLC faction, which is the corporate faction, puts their boy uh, Bill Clinton in charge and uh, pretty much takes over the Democratic Party. I'm not saying that there isn't corporate interest in these parties before that. What I am saying is that uh, very clearly, big business says, uh, you know, we got to take a, a more active, direct role, and they do so. Uh, first in the Republican Party, and then the Democratic Party, and both those parties push uh, neoliberalism uh, throughout the 80s and 90s. There's no real difference between Bill Clinton and Ronald Reagan when it comes to neoliberalism. It's just the different emphasis, maybe. Uh, you know, uh, Reagan did emphasized more of neoliberal fiscal and monetary policies and uh, lagged in terms of the trade and the, and the currency policies. Uh, didn't get around to doing it until starting in the late uh, 1980s, but it's Clinton that drives uh, the trade, uh, you know, the uh, uh, free trade agreements and so forth that are all part of neoliberal uh, trade policy. Uh, and uh, he drives it in other areas as well that has to do with uh, uh, the labor force, uh, encouraging uh, uh, temporary work and so forth and importing uh, foreign labor, et cetera. So the different presidents are emphasizing these four elements of neoliberal policy, which comes out of the 70s, which is a different policy mix than after World War II and, and right before World War I. It's a different restructuring in the 70s and 80s that occurs. It's the neoliberal restructuring that occurs with these four policy areas with different emphasis and mixes. And then, you know, it continues in democratic and Republican regimes uh, ever since 1980. There's really no difference uh, between them except the difference of emphasis, whether they're gonna emphasize tax policy or, or uh, you know, uh, Federal Reserve policy or trade policy or whatever. And that's what my book covers. It shows the evolution of these four policy areas that given their particular mix is called neoliberalism uh, throughout the period from uh, 78, 79, up and through uh, uh, Trump, at least in, through 2019, because the book's yeah. really written. Uh, and and what, NAFTA was 28 um, years ago and that got us Trump, right? What, what's, what's always impressed me about Jack's work is, is and separates him from most uh, academic uh, uh, economists, uh, is his close attention to history. Uh, ever since I first read his, his uh, epic recession book, which is a very impressive book, I've been, uh, uh, I admire his attention. He goes back to the history of recessions and through them uh, very carefully. And you know, I learned a lot from that. Um, but I was a little surprised about the way he's, the way you have, you have uh, cut up uh, these restructurings. Uh, is there a reason why you don't see 
the 30s and the New Deal as a restructuring. And to, to elaborate on that, perhaps the, the so-called neoliberal turn is being a reaction to the failure of that in the late 60s and early 70s. The massive amount of uh, debt that had built up. I know you're an expert on, on debt and the way it affects uh, uh, other economic factors. But you, you have this, this model, which was created in the 30s. We, we identify it with Roosevelt and the New Deal. But it really was bipartisan through most of the uh, 50s and 60s. And then it had a logjam in the 70s with stagflation. And I wonder if you see that its failings, the failure of that particular model has been a contributing factor, a major contributing factor to the appeal, the policy appeal of uh, neoliberalism and the fact that it became consensual just the way the New Deal, the Keynesian model became consensual during the uh, 40s, 50s, 60s, until, until the 70s. Well, that's a good question. And uh, yes, I, I do uh, deal with that to some extent. I see the 1930s and uh, you know the New Deal uh, and uh, FDR uh, from 35 on. Uh, in 33, 34, it, it really wasn't uh, the New Deals I see it. There were a few uh, you know, attempts to do some spending, uh, but it wasn't uh, until 35 that we really started getting the New Deal after the 34 midterms when the Democrats, FDR Democrats re really had control. Uh, and uh, that whole effort from 35 on with a little lapse in 37, 38, uh, up through World War II, was an attempt uh, to uh, buy the support of the working class uh, to prevent the working class in the US from uh, going the way of Europe and uh, going to revolution, uh, either left or right. Uh, and then, of course, they need the working class during World War II. So it, it's kind of a reversal of the restructuring, the first restructuring around World War I uh, because of the crisis that exists, existed. Uh, but the response immediately after World War II was, was the opposite. Uh, the capitalist restructured now uh, because they were the global hegemon here and the global economic empire of America really took root. Uh, it is re was really a, a way of rolling back uh, the New Deal uh, challenges. Now, it took some time to do that. Uh, they did it very carefully, very slowly for the first couple of decades. Um, and then in the 1970s, when it looked like uh, popular forces were once again coming to the fore, uh, they accelerated the attack on the New Deal. Uh, and that's what neoliberalism is as well. It's an attack on the New Deal or what's left of the vestiges of the New Deal. Uh, and, uh, you know, U.S. capitalists have been very clever. They never uh, overplay their, their hand. They don't push things too far too fast. Uh, they, they have, they, at least until recently, they've had some patience in, in chipping away at it. Uh, and you got to look at the whole New Deal period. Uh, I mean, the whole uh, neoliberal period as a, uh, uh, at least uh, slowly beginning and now accelerating to dismantle the New Deal. So the New Deal is kind of like an aberration in the whole trend of uh, capitalist evolution in America because they had to do it. You see, they, the capitalists were under, under a challenge and they had to do it. And you should see what's happening with COVID in the same light. Uh, you know, they had a big challenge here. So whenever there's a challenge, neoliberalism will throw some, some uh, resources at the working class. You know, to uh, stabilize it and keep it from uh, uh, moving too fast uh, in terms of its uh, challenges. And that's what they've done here. That's what they did in 2008, although far less than they're doing it now. Um, but as soon as they do this uh, and a media crisis passes, uh, then they, uh, they, the capitalists, uh, engage in austerity, which is taking it back. You say whatever they threw, they take back. Uh, that's a characteristic of neoliberal policy as well. And we saw that clearly under Obama. Uh, you know, he comes out with a $787 billion insufficient fiscal stimulus uh, in 2009. Uh, and then when the worst of the crisis is over, what does he agree to in August of 2011? He agrees to take back a trillion and a half in social program spending. So what they give with one during the crisis, they take back. Uh, even more, and that's called austerity, right? Uh, as soon as the worst of the crisis is over. Uh, we're going to see the same thing here. 
uh, with, uh, uh, you know, with uh, Biden and capitalists right now. They threw some money, not as much as the, as the media is saying, uh, to stabilize uh, the worst of the crisis. Uh, but uh, once the Republicans come back in, and uh, they will, uh, I'm almost certain here in 2022 and 24, uh, you'll see austerity once again. They'll take it back again. Uh, that's a characteristic of fiscal policy under neoliberalism as well. So you, you can't be misled by the fact you may have these temporary reversals in restructuring and, neo, and the neoliberal restructuring. Uh, they will come back to the main path as they always have been, which is to... Uh, you know, compress wages, to, to undermine unions, uh, to uh, privatize as much as they can, to give as much free money through the Fed to the big bankers and, and investors, to give as much tax cuts as they can to corporations. Uh, that is what neoliberalism is really about. You know, I, I came across this um, cartoon the other day. I don't know if you can see it. It's a famous cartoon of a uh, Reagan with Bush, and it says, and then we told him wealth would trickle down. And so it's like a internet meme. The, the question is, and they're, they're laughing, uh, do they really believe that, do they believe this? I mean, do they believe that tax cuts will create jobs, that free trade is good for everybody, that markets are always right, that if we just, you know, that they problem with entitlements programs as they increase the debt of our country. I mean, all of these things are mendacity at the best. Uh, they're just not true. And do they know that that's not true, but they don't care as long as they can use that as a propaganda tool to get what they want? Well, corresponding to the real policy is this whole edifice of ideology that justifies it that's created along the way, justifies it to uh, you know, the rest of the population. Uh, I'm using ideology to Marxist sense here, the you know, misrepresent misrepresentation of truth and fact, right? That's what ideology really is. Uh, it's not an ism, in other words. Uh, and uh, it's very fine-tuned in, in the USA. Uh, they had a lot of practice at it and they're very good at, at the ideology. Uh, to answer your, your point though, uh, I think the guys who really pull the levers of decision-making power know that it's nonsense, uh, but uh, below that, increasingly people believe it's true, you see, and you get way down to the working class and the population, and they're sold this nonsense about uh, tax cuts create jobs. Uh, well, let's just look at that in the last decade or so. Well, since the year 2000, my calculations show uh, that since 2001, uh, with Bush, that uh, Congress has given $15 trillion in tax cuts to corporations and investors and the wealthiest 1%, 15 trillion. Have we seen a massive increase in, in uh, investment and production and jobs? No, we haven't. <laughs> it hasn't resulted in uh, creating all the jobs. Tax cuts create jobs or business tax cuts, I should say, that's really what they mean, is really an, an ideological uh, uh, argument. And it goes along with a lot of other ideological arguments, you know, like an inflation is too much money chasing too few goods. Oh, your wages aren't rising because an individual, you're not very productive, go get an education, uh, and so on and so forth. There's these propositions that comprise the whole ideological structure uh, uh, that allows them to sell uh, this uh, neoliberal policies, which is really about maximizing uh, the, uh, the income and the wealth of, uh, of the capitalist class, particularly the, you know, the big capitalist class, uh, and uh, justifying it with these themes. I mean, all these tax cut acts uh, since George Bush are called uh, job acts, right? That's the way they phrase them. Uh, and uh, trickle down is nonsense, you know, very little trickles down and, you know, 99% of it goes to the very top. Uh, for example, since, since Obama, uh, there are these economists that I think have, uh, you know, some validity, uh, uh, Piketty and Saez, Emmanuel Saez, who has done this uh, yeoman work looking at uh, uh, Social Security uh, information 
and IRS information to show how much the wealthiest 1%, 110 and 100% uh, households have gained income over time. Uh, and uh, under, uh, I think I've got the figures right, under, uh, under Clinton, it was 45% uh, of all the new additional income created went to the wealthiest 1%, 45%. According to this very empirical data, you see, this is, this is not just talk, this is looking at the numbers through the IRS. 45% uh, went to the wealthiest 1%. Uh, under Bush, uh, that rose to 68% of all the additional net income created in the economy went to the 1%. You go under Obama, 95% of all the income created in the recovery uh, went to the 1%. Uh, and of course, we're gonna see the same picture here uh, going forward. Uh, that's the fundamental objective of all these neoliberal policies. Uh, yes, I try to approach this historically because you can't understand it unless you look at the history and the ev evolution. But I also look at it fundamentally from a class perspective because that's really what it's all about. It's really uh, class-based policies uh, and uh, to deliver uh, for the 1%. And uh, what you see over time is uh, they're delivering more and more. And Greg, you recently wrote about that in your blog, the uh, the Time Magazine and Rand report that was talking about the distribution of wealth um, from 1975 to present. And it's exactly what you're talking uh, about. It was an article that, Go ahead. To my surprise, Rand, uh, Rand puts out a, a study, you know, the, last, the last people in the world, did you expect them to come up with this, picked up in Newsweek, that, uh, that shows, demonstrates that if uh, the same rate of exploitation that existed in the glorious 50s and 60s were maintained beyond that, trillions and trillions of dollars that uh, were essentially stolen from the working class. And uh, it was a message that got absolutely no traction. I mean, it, it's RAN, for Christ's sake, RAN Corporation right-wing uh, think tank and Newsweek magazine. You'd think that it'd be picked up by at least a handful of uh, mainstream media, but it wasn't, it just died in a stillbirth. But uh, yeah, remarkable figures. It's like Jack's figures about uh, where the money went, where, where the, uh, the gains that were made in GDP went and who they went to uh, going forward. But we would ask Jack, uh, I'll ask Jack, uh, you know, you, you created a great topology of uh, normal recessions, of epic recessions and depressions. And I, I find it very useful to think in those terms and you explain kind of when they come up, um, are we in any of that typology now? Do you see us as anywhere in that, uh, that, that uh, nexus that you created in your, in your book? Yeah, uh, you know, one of the areas of mainstream economics that uh, I, I think is uh, so poorly served is uh, trying to explain uh, depressions or great recessions. Uh, you know, mainstream e economics says, oh, it's an external shock. There's nothing endemic and inherent going on in the system, you see. Uh, that's their number one argument here. And they don't make a distinction uh, between normal recessions and what causes those and more severious contractions. And that's what I tried to do in the 2010 book, Epic Recession, was uh, to uh, explain uh, these contractions in more detail. Uh, you have normal recessions. Uh, which usually occur because of imbalances of various kinds in, in the economy. <clears throat> but great recessions, uh, which economists like uh, Paul Krugman said, oh, those are just worse normal recessions, which I don't think is true. There's something qualitatively different about great recessions and depressions. Uh, if you look at the great recession of 2008-10 uh, in the US, uh, what you see is a relationship between uh, the financial crisis due to runaway uh, speculation, uh, which is fed by the Federal Reserve, ultimately. Uh, and uh, that precipitates a what would have been a normal recession, precipitates and exacerbates it into a great recession. And then you have feedback effects from the real contraction in the economy to the financial side and so forth, unless uh, the Fed steps in and bails out the banks, which is what it does. Uh, 
So the point is there's a relationship in great recessions always between financial crash and the real economic contraction. That's different from normal recessions. Uh, depressions are when they can't stop the feedback effects between the two, financial and real, and they just repeat themselves and get worse. That's what happened in the Great Depression of the 1930s. You know, it starts uh, with a contraction of the real economy. The stock market crash exacerbates that. Uh, the real economy starts uh, contracting uh, more, uh, but not totally. And then you have banking crashes. And the Great Depression was a series of four banking crashes every year that just kept ratcheting down uh, the, the general contraction. So there's this relationship between finance crash and real economy that goes on in great recessions and in depressions. Depressions, it runs out of control. Are we in something like that now? Uh, well, I'm still looking at that closely because obviously this time we did not have a financial crash precipitating and exacerbating at all. We had a COVID <laughs> kind of playing that role, uh, but then we had a, you know, a deep contraction of the real economy. And the question is, will that now spread to a financial uh, crisis at some point uh, as a result of the Fed throwing $5 trillion uh, into the hands of speculators and investors? Uh, well, it hasn't come to that yet, but I'm watching it closely because you don't really need a financial crash coming before a real contraction. It could occur the opposite uh, uh, way from a, you know, a real contraction going to a financial crash, but uh, uh, the jury is still out on that. I'm not sure whether we are in a, a great recession, uh, and I think uh, you know, we have to wait uh, another couple of years to see what that uh, turns out. I'm a, I'm a firm believer in reading tea leaves. And I saw in today's Wall Street Journal, an interesting article about the CEOs. They're fleeing uh, the market. They're selling off at a, at a pace that they haven't seen in, in, in probably decades since the uh, Great Recession, or the uh, epic recession, if you will. And uh, that's a tea leaf to me. I mean, if, and in fact, in the bottom of the article, uh, a comment, uh, commentator mentions, well, you know what this is. They're, they're, they're scared to death. And so they're selling off their assets because they see something uh, something brewing. So we shall see. We shall see. I, I agree. What about the inflation? It's, uh, how, do you, how do you read the inflation now? Today's news brings 6.8%, uh, mm. November 6.8% uh, inflation rate. Well, I think uh, inflation is worse than 6.8% for a whole number of reasons, the way they calculate and, uh, and uh, make assumptions in the consumer price index and other price indexes. I think it's at least over 10% <clears throat> going on. It's a significant problem. Uh, it's going to negatively impact consumer spending going into 2022. <clears throat> and that's uh, two thirds of the economy. So I think inflation is gonna slow down the economy going on. Uh, what does it do to, uh, I think, uh, in part, it's a global supply problem, in part only, uh, which kind of suggests that this COVID uh, contraction has uh, fundamentally uh, uh, changed the product markets as, as the labor markets, and economists don't appreciate. They think they're going back to the old normal. They're not. Something fundamentally has changed in a number of markets here, and we're going to see over time you know, what that is. Uh, one of those fundamental changes uh, is, uh, of course, uh, the inflation, which is partly due to uh, supply problems, global supply chain for goods, goods imports. But you know, most of the economy is 80% uh, of it is not goods, it's services in this country, and services are going up too. And that's not because of a supply problem with the global supply chain of goods, right? Uh, so what does it do to? Uh, I think what you got is, uh, you know, the capitalists coming out of the crisis of last year when the uh, uh, revenue fell and they weren't making much profit. And now they're coming out of it. And they're trying to make up for that profit loss by raising prices. And you got inflationary expectations going on in the business community, raising prices because they can. Uh, and uh, as well as beginning, you know, among the households, inflationary expectations on, on the demand side. So it's partly due to supply. I think there's some, some domestic supply problems unrelated to global chains uh, going on. Uh, they can't get enough truck drivers. Uh, you know, and I keep telling people, well, you know, 
why why can't they get enough truck drivers? Well, that's because in recent decades, the real wages of truck drivers has dropped by a third. Who the hell wants to go into driving trucks when it's a you know falling wage uh, uh, sector? Uh, so there's that on the uh, supply side. Uh, is it due to demand? Well, you got some demand increasing uh, because the economy opened up some, about half. Uh, it's opened up. Uh, is it is it due to uh, the big uh, uh, stimulus p bill here of uh, you know last March, the American Rescue Plan? No, I don't think it's very much due to that at all. That's mostly been spent. Uh, for this year by uh, August, this inflation surge is post is post August. Uh, uh, is it due uh, to open the economy a little bit? Remember, you're coming off of a deflation last year, so you're going to get higher prices now that the economy opens up. Uh, but uh, it's not due to uh, excess demand given to people because that's been all cut off uh, pretty much. Although the Republicans like to say, oh, you know, you're spending too much money, giving people too much money. Uh, you know, the victim is the cause of the, of the problem. The working, worker is the cause of the problem, uh, which is a classic uh, uh, capitalist ideological argument. Uh, so, uh, you know, it's not demand. Uh, I think it's mostly uh, price gouging going on. In other words, neither demand or supply. It's uh, monopoly companies raising prices because they can uh, you look at the, today's figures, and uh, the big culprit there is uh, gasoline prices, uh, increased 6% in one month, which is like 70% over a year, right? Uh, is that supply and demand? Uh, no, not at all. Uh, supply of oil, crude oil, does not change that much over time, very slowly. Uh, demand uh, has increased a little, but not enough to justify that huge price increase. Uh, but it's mostly, uh, you know, price gouging by oil companies, by some food companies. I mean, there's no supply and demand problem in, in buying meat or, or eggs or, or uh, milk, right? That production has not slowed down during the crisis, and the demand has not changed that much. Uh, so, you know, why are we getting inflation in those areas, in oil and energy and rents and so forth? Uh, it's because they can. It's price gouging going on, which is neither a classic supply or demand explanation. So I, I have a question back to my Stephen King, the horror, the horror story uh, analogy and your truck drivers. I, I have here an article that uh, you mentioned in your book, AI and the effect of AI. And it, uh, I don't know how accurate this is. I'm just looking it up on my, on my iPhone here, but truck drivers will be replaced by AI technology as early as 2027. According to Los Angeles Times, 1.7 million American truckers could be replaced by self-driving trucks. And this goes to a question I have, is capitalism kind of killing itself? I, you know, are, is there their greed and the normal... Um, um, trajectory of them trying to increase wealth for a smaller percentage of people going to destroy the system i mean can you can can we sustain 1.7 million people just being unemployed uh, in a decade well you know most of that uh, self-driving trucks will be uh, interstate you know it won't be your your local ups guys right so right uh, so, you know, that's a clarification, but uh, certainly those jobs are, are going to be automated uh, because of AI, uh, artificial intelligence. Think of it as a new kind of software machinery. Uh, and uh, I, in fact, I just wrote an article uh, for the World Review of Political Economy on uh, the changing character of capitalist exploitation in production and exchange, which focuses a lot on the new technologies and their role. Uh, in uh, intensifying uh, exploitation, which means getting rid of workers, you see, reducing their hours or reducing them uh, and replacing them with machines that make the decisions. Uh, and that's what artificial intelligence is really about. And uh, combined with the other new technologies like 5G wireless and cybersecurity and blockchain and so forth, uh, you know, this is going to result in uh, massive job losses and hours of work here over the next decade. Uh, it's not just my view, but you know, McKinsey and other consultants and others see this coming as well. 
but to answer your question, you know, capitalism always has to drive to reduce costs, right? To compete, so the capitalists can compete, uh, you know, one to one uh, on that level with each other. Uh, and it's a global capitalist competition now, uh, and uh, that's why this new new round of technologies uh, coming are going to reduce jobs. Now, you reduce jobs, you reduce income, uh, and that uh, depresses. Uh, uh, consumption and so forth. So the capitalists are facing this real crisis. Uh, how do they maintain at, at least survivable income levels and standard of living uh, for uh, for the working class and for consumer households uh, when they're eliminating all these jobs? This is a big question for them. You know, will they agree to some sort of a of a, a annual minimum income? Uh, you know, what will they do? It remains to be seen what they do, but they have a real uh, tiger by the tail here, I think. At the same time, they got a big tiger by the tail with this climate change thing that I don't think they're addressing very, very well. Uh, and uh, at the same time, we got a collapse of democracy going on in this country <clears throat> and uh, probably the rise of uh, even more stupid people uh, trying to manage the capitalist system going forward. Before you got on, Greg and I were chatting about, <coughs> I don't know if I'm putting words in your mouth, Greg, but I mean, to what extent is this neoliberalism as opposed to just capitalism being capitalism? I mean, I, I, that that's what capitalism does. Uh, uh, is, it, is it really truly a unique feature that started about 40 years ago, or is this just the it's way, both. The, it's way both. It is. the answer is both you know what it is is a more intense uh, exploitation of the working class and i uh, describe that in the book uh, and in this other article that i've just written uh, uh so you have to see it as a more intense exploitation but it's really also politically a way of containing the challenge from the working class because the industrial policy is really uh, to uh, weaken the working class in lots of ways. Uh, and it's also at the same time, uh, uh, you know, confronting the domestic class challenges. It's at the same time confronting international capitalist challenges. There's this international capitalist uh, uh, element to it for US capital to remain, you know, the, the hegemonic uh, power in relationship to challenges by other uh, capitalists and you know other forces as well, you know like the Chinese. You're going to call them capitalists or not capitalists, you know whatever you want to debate. But uh, there's this global uh, element uh, to neoliberal policies, and domestically, uh, you know there's the domestic element, but it's a class-based fight, uh, and history shows uh, the the policies get more and more intense over time. So. Are we going to see a more intense form of neoliberalism? Uh, well, Trump tried to create that. He didn't get very far, you see. Uh, will that can continue now after Biden? Uh, or will we see a total new, uh, a new, new set, a new mix of capitalist policies once again that will be different uh, than neoliberalism uh, but probably uh, even even more uh, uh, vicious and even more um, aggressive uh, than even neoliberalism, if you can imagine that. That's one possibility. Or you could have, I believe, uh, a significant political change and a reaction and a reorganization of popular and working class interests uh, to uh, uh, move in the other direction and move back towards more of a new deal. Uh, whether you get a new deal versus a more intense corporate controlled kind of a mix uh, in the rest, later in the 2020s to 2030s uh, really remains to be seen. But I think it could go either way, as I said at the end of the book uh, uh, on, on neoliberalism. It could go either way. But it's what we got in terms of neoliberalism, as you see it now today, cannot, I believe, uh, uh, continue. Something different is going to happen. Uh, it's going to have to be more aggressively pro-corporate or less so. Well, it's 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 the question then then becomes how do we achieve that? It doesn't become a question of analysis of where we are and what the possibilities are. It becomes a question of how do we get there? How do we get beyond neoliberalism? 
can we get beyond neoliberalism and still be capitalist or do we have to get beyond capitalism to get beyond neoliberalism? So what are your thoughts? I mean, we've kind of got a political system that doesn't really seem to work. We've got a kind of uh, economic system that's failing. Uh, I don't have a lot of confidence in the Democratic Party. Even the progressive wing of the Democratic Party seems to be stalled. So how, how would you see or how can you imagine us getting out of this this situation go beyond neoliberalism. Yeah, well, uh, I'm, I'm not too optimistic in that regard uh, because I don't see much in the US of alternative organization. Uh, you have to have organization uh, in order to challenge what's going on. Uh, I see the uh, Democrats and Republicans as two wings of the corporate party of America. We only have a single party system here. And the, the two parties uh, collude, and uh, you can see that going on in Congress now. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, one party uh, thinks that they can, uh, one wing thinks that they can uh, you know, squeeze more and more out of people. That's the Republicans, and the other party thinks that, uh, oh, if we just throw some uh, some minor reforms, uh, it will restabilize the system, which of course it never does, uh, and things just continue to evolve to a, a worse state. Um, so, uh, you know, at the same time, we see the political system uh, crumbling. You know, what's left of electoral democracy is under great threat here today. And we will see the consequences of that, I think, within the next few years. Uh, you've got several dozen states, uh, uh, red states, Trump states, uh, that are uh, gerrymandering and voter repressing uh, uh, to, to the max right now. And uh, they're going to lock those states up. And you see uh, from the January 6th report, what you can you know, uh, get from that report is that uh, you know, a certain wing of the capitalists are willing to uh, um, throw what's left of electoral democracy uh, you know, over the side of the boat, right? And the hell with it. Uh, we'll find another way to run and control the system. Uh, so without organization, um, you know, outside these two wings of this, this single party, uh, I'm not too optimistic because things won't happen just by themselves, you see. Uh, there has to be a, a force, an organizational force that will challenge for the levers of power in this country. And I just don't see it here. So, you know, I, I hate to be very pessimistic, but I believe in being realistic first. And that is, uh, uh, you will only be able to influence a, a better outcome uh, unless you organize. Uh, you know, I'm an old time organizer from my youth, 15 years in the labor movement uh, from the bottom up. So, uh, you know, I believe in organization and I, and I don't believe there's a, a simple ways of, uh, of uh, you know, reforming uh, and uh, changing uh, what exists. So, you know, there's this whole uh, line of thought, as you know, Greg, about uh, modern money theory, MMT, you know, which I think is just a, a screwball idea here, very, very naive uh, about the, you know, what, how the power is really structured in this country. And they think they're gonna reform it by uh, getting the central bank, the Federal Reserve, uh, not to be the, uh, the vehicle of protecting bankers and investors. And somehow that's gonna protect the rest of us, you know, uh, you'll need a revolution before that happens. Uh, so, uh, you know, I'm not, Pat, I'm not very optimistic, unfortunately. Well, I, that's what, that's my frustration too. I'm sure as an economist, you would say, okay, if I was in charge of everything, you know, look at the, G I would do this, like, like the GI Bill, with the money we spent on the GI Bill to put these vets to college after World War II ended up bringing more benefits than the money we spent. College for all, you know, we just had Biden get rid of that and the student debt loan, you know, the most European countries will have kindergarten through college based on merit, they'll pay for it because, because the investment that they put forth in that, they get back more in benefits from it. And so much of these policies that we have, seems like the people support them but then the dysfunction of our political party, and as you said, they're they're hijacked by the you know their one wing of the corporate uh, controlled party. Um, it must just frustrate the hell out of you to say, as an economist, I could do this to improve things, 
but our political dysfunction prohibits that. I don't know, any thoughts about that? Yeah, well, you know, one of my views is that uh, the quality of leadership of the capitalist class and present is not equivalent to the quality you know, from their own person, their, their own class interest, uh, the post-war capitalists, the, the, they saw a broader vision. Uh, they saw the, neo, the need if they were going to really expand uh, uh, production here now that they were, you know, pretty much exporting to the world that they had to have a, uh, uh, you know, a, an educated uh, cap, uh, working class here. Uh, they saw the advantages economically of a GI Bill and some of these things. At the same time, of course, they were acting to uh, um, uh, bring bring the labor movement to heel, you know, with Taft-Hartley and Landon Griffin and these other legislations. So they were pursuing both at the same time, both policies. Uh, but, the, you know, the current capitalists, uh, look at it. Look at the political elite uh, sector of the capitalist class. Uh, look at the quality of the people. You know, you've got Trump, Trump types. I mean, uh, really crazy people there. You know that will will shoot themselves not only in the in the foot but you know in the in the head of eventually with some of their approaches for trying to you know reform capitalism and then you got this weak uh, uh, tepid uh, uh, organization called the Democratic Party you know that split down the middle that progressive wing is is so weak and so uh, ineffectual we've seen that you know for two years now with the whole Sanders movement. Uh, can't really reform that party. It's not ever going to be able to reform that party. Uh, the corporate wing will not allow it uh, to happen. And we've seen that time and time again. But yet they're hanging on, they're trying to do something. The Democrats need that wing to win elections, you know, so they make it all kind of promises during elections. But then after the elections, they just go and do what the hell they want anyway. Uh, and then you got splits in it. Uh, you know, you got Republicans running as Democrats, the mansions and senators, and so forth. So nothing's going to be be achieved, I think, through the Democratic Party. Uh, so you got a decline uh, of these parties, these two parties, uh, in the present period, uh, unlike what you had uh, 50, 60 years ago. At least they knew their long-run capitalist interests. Uh, here they're just running uh, headlong into the future. Uh, trying to grab as much as they can and uh, trying to, uh, you know, change the democratic uh, system as, as minimal as it is uh, to ensure they can continue grabbing as much as they can. Uh, that's the political uh, side of the decline of the economic uh, side of the, the decline of the American empire, economic empire. You're a real, you're a real bummer. Uh, <laughs> no, I know. This is very, this is very depressing. What no, do you think, Greg? It's, uh, it's important to remember that the uh, wisdom of the 50s and 60s of our ruling class, it's important to remember that the wisdom of these leaders in the 50s and 60s grew out of the fact that they were deathly afraid of a competition with the Soviet Union. Mm -hmm. What that meant was that they had to be sensitive, for example, with Brown versus Board of Education to the indictment in these colonial regimes, these colonial countries that were getting their independence of segregation in the South. It, it, you couldn't believe the United States and its talk about uh, justice, social justice and equality when they had that situation. So that pressured them. It pressured them economically to sustain these, these, these anti-working class moves that they made. They paid, paid for them by offering wage increases concomitant with productivity gains, number one. They also, educationally, I went to college because of Sputnik because federal monies were made available because a country that could put Sputnik into the, into the in orbit was a rival to the US who couldn't do this. So they had a, were tons of money. I went to graduate school in a National Defense Education Act fellowship as a, as a leftist. I got a national, as so many of us did, NDA fellowships were, Title IVs were a basis for, for uh, uh, my education. So the Soviet Union was the cause of this uh, wonderful 20-year period after World War II. But we don't have that now. We don't have those rivals. We don't have anything comparable to that. We have no domestic threat from communism. We have no international threat from anything like that. And so the, both parties get away with all this. 
both parties can do this without any uh, any concern. Jack, I, I, I said you were kind of a bummer, uh, but maybe, it, do you have any hope in this uh, a Starbucks in Buffalo? Do you have any hope as an old labor organizer and, and leader, do you have any hope that the labor movement may give us some ability out of this quagmire? What are your thoughts about that? Uh, I have a lot of hope in uh, the young working class. I'm talking about the millennials and the Gen Zers and others who have been taking it in the ear for 20 years now. Uh, they're the ones who have been really abused. And uh, they're the ones, you know, who when they ask them, they don't, a lot of them, they don't think very much of the system. Uh, some of them are cynical. Others, uh, you know, have uh, turned against the system. Uh, polls show uh, when you ask them, uh, you know, what do you think of socialism? 70% said, yeah, I'm for socialism. Of course, that means uh, anything but what exists, <laughs> right? Uh, yeah, uh, I mean, I'm, I'm optimistic about the, those generations and those workers because they're being screwed so badly and they know it. They have no, not much hope for the future. You know, the gig workers, the part-time workers and so forth. These are a lot of the people, by the way, who just aren't coming back to work right now who are desperately looking for something else, you know, uh, what, what they see in their life is a dead end, but something has to organize those forces, you see. Uh, and, and that's the big challenge right now uh, in the US. Uh, I believe that the, the conditions are there. Uh, I believe that the agent, uh, in other words, the, the, the generations of young workers are there. Uh, can the union do something about it? Uh, I see a little bit of awakening of organized labor going on. You know, we saw with the recent deer strike, uh, we see it with uh, uh, the Teamsters and the auto workers now taking over direct election of their leadership. Uh, we see it with certain strikes uh, occurring, you know, uh, now for the first time. Uh, that's a hopeful sight, but, uh, you know, on the on the negative side, you know, the problem is uh, at the top of the AFL-CIO, you got guys uh, who uh, uh, see their future as tying themselves more to the Democratic Party. And the Democratic Party keeps telling them whenever uh, workers rise up to, to try to do something, oh, you know, don't embarrass us, uh, uh, you know, uh, put, your, put your people under control, right? Uh, and, and as I said earlier, I spent 15 years in the bottom as an organizer uh, for four different unions and as an elected local union president, I led strikes, I negotiated contracts, I did everything from the bottom up. Uh, and, you know, I came to the conclusion uh, that uh, you have this, uh, this layer on top of the working class in the unions that the main role is to sit on them, really, you know, uh, and they do it by all kinds of ways. I won't get into it, you know, uh, they do it by controlling the leadership, uh, pretty much. But when you got a direct vote now for the Teamsters and the, and the, the auto workers, you know that's not a weakens their control. I'm not saying every president of the AFL-CIO union is is of that that ilk, uh, but <clears throat> whether the unions come forth and lead uh, will depend upon whether they can they can break those chains and act independently. The workers will want to act independently independently, uh, but will their leaders uh, go along with them? Uh, that's the big question to me on the union side. Uh, on, on the class side, which is you know the vast majority, uh, I believe uh, you're gonna continue to see uh, ways of rebelling against the conditions. Uh, whether somehow that can be mobilized and, uh, and organized is, is the big question. You know, uh, we got a big problem in this country of identity politics and uh, everybody going off trying to do their little thing. You know, this movement on this issue and this movement on this issue and the class keeps itself fragmented. Uh, that's, you know, the way the capitalists want it. Keep it fragmented. We can contain these little outbursts here. You know, we can contain occupations here and there and whatever. Uh, but we don't want them all to come together. At some point, the leaders of real movements working class movements, community movements at the grassroots are gonna to have to understand that they're gonna to have to come together, you know, in a convention or whatever and form a new political organization. And they're gonna to have to give up being big fish in a little pond and being smaller fish in a big pond. Uh, and uh, 
when that happens, I will, you know, when we see that from the bottoms up, not something from the top down, like you know, a bunch of intellectuals forming a people's party and expecting everybody to come. Uh, that's not the way it happens. Uh, but when it happens from the bottom up, uh, and I think that will happen. The question is when, and will it be in time? Well, you are my new favorite economist. <laughs> I can't tell you how much I enjoyed your book and our especially our conversation i'll i'll link to you you have so many things i won't mention it all but i'll link in the description to your blog and your books and radio and so forth you are you make this seem so easy to follow and understand i wish i would have had you as a, a professor uh, back in 1970 in as my economics professor <laughs> You do a wonderful job teaching. Thank you. Yeah, if people want to, uh, you know, just go to my blog, jackrasmus.com, follow my articles there. My Twitter feed is at drjackrasmus, as you know. Uh, my website has the videos and everything. Uh, you can get there from the blog. My radio show is Alternative Divisions on the Progressive Radio Network on Fridays. Uh, this is where I, I try to uh, make a small contribution. Uh, as, as a good teacher, you are. So... Thank you so much. Appreciate it. Nice, nice to meet you, Pat and Greg. Nice to meet you finally too. Yeah, and I finally see each other. Yes. Yeah, yeah. And by the way, I came up the same way uh, education-wise. It wasn't for the NDA, National Defense Act in the 60s. I wouldn't have been able to stay in college. I got lucky because uh, I could kick a football that I got in. But <laughs> but then uh, I had to, uh, you know, pay for it some way when uh, yeah, I could make yeah. the first team. And if it wasn't for the NDAA, I wouldn't have gotten an education either. Exactly. I, you know, I, I paid uh, $75 a quarter because I was on a teacher scholarship and left college with no debt. You know, my son just finished his doctoral Likewise. program and he's got, you know. Oh, yeah, I know. His student debt is just. Astronomical. It's insane. Remarkable. Yeah. So, yeah. Anyway, yeah. so that's that. Well, thank you so much. Thanks, Jack. Good to I see you.